Good morning. Good morning. Man, a uh, special welcome to those of you who may be guests with us. Uh, so glad that you chose to come and spend some of your morning here um, with us. My name is Kondo. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Mission Point. And um, man, this morning I have the privilege of continuing a series uh, that we've been in, that we are calling Summer Lovin', Taking the Church outdoors. And, uh, but before we do that, I just want to pause and thank Justin Braun. I don't know if Justin Babyface Braun is here in the house, but man, he taught us so well last uh, week as we took a, a quick break out of the series. And uh, so thankful to see the way the Lord gifts different ones of us. And so glad uh, to give opportunities for different folks to use their gifts, even as we've been talking about in the recent months. So, so thankful to Justin for his um, man, labor of love and the use of his gifts to serve you all. But this week, we are resuming um, our series, Summer Loving, Taking the Church Outdoors. And, and we're just trying to figure out what might it look like for us to be the church this summer. That's not so much a question of what would it look like for us to go to church this summer. In fact, the reality is during the summer, uh, as different people's plans start to take shape, we see less and less people showing up to the church services. That doesn't freak us out. That just tells us if there are less people in the building, that means there are more people out there. That means the church is outdoors. And so if that is true, what does it look like for us to capitalize on the unique opportunities to interact with people this summer that we might not otherwise interact with? Well, it means kids are home from college, or it means that you know kids are home from school, so we get to interact with them more often. Family reunions and cookouts and, and fireworks last weekend and the fair coming up this weekend and family vacations and things of that sort. What does it look like for us to be the church this summer? What does it look like for us to put Jesus on display in the world around us? What does it look like for us to love well this Summer. And so in order to answer that question, we've been uh, working our way through a, a very well-known passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, we're going to resume that here in a second. You can feel free to jump ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians uh, 13. That's where we're going to spend um, most of our time. And this morning, we want to continue that conversation uh, by asking the question, how should I respond when I feel wronged, how should we as a church outdoors respond when we feel wronged? How should I respond when I feel betrayed? How should I respond when I feel like someone has rejected me or someone has disrespected me or somebody has insulted me or someone has overlooked me? Um, how should I respond to feeling wrong? This, by the way, is such a great question for us to answer for life. <laughs> but more than that, this is a great question for us to answer for the next couple of hours. This is a great question for us to answer before we even get to our car for some of us because we are going to experience experience being wronged very quickly, whether it's a kid who mouthed off because we asked them to buckle up for the 500th time this weekend, you know, or whether it's somebody who didn't use their blinker driving in front of you and they knew which way they were turning, which drives me crazy personally, just confessing to you all right now, or whether as you get in the car, you discover that somebody forgot to turn on the crock pot. They had one job today, one job. Or whether it's in the next number of days when you will re-engage with somebody who just has a way of quickly getting under your skin. This question is not a question of if. The question is a question of who will wrong me and how soon is that going to happen. So how should we respond? I think Paul answers that question for us in a very simple way, but it's not simple to apply. So let's go together to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to read this section of Scripture in its entirety, and then we'll focus in on what I believe um, are some helpful words from Paul for us 
this morning. By the way, if you don't have a copy um, of the Bible, if you don't have a physical copy, we would love to get one into your hands. And um, all you need to do is stop by the Connection Corner after the service and just ask for one, our gift to you. But the verses are going to be up here on the screens, um, or at least on this one screen in the meantime. Let me read this section of Scripture, and then we'll come back in and zone in on verse 5. Uh, starting at verse 4, here's what it says. Love is patient. And we are just asking, what would it look like if this described how the church interacted in the world, in the relationships around us this summer? Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. How does love respond when it feels wronged? How should the church respond when we feel wronged? Not just this summer, but as we live the rest of our lives. Paul answers that question uh, by telling us how love does not respond when it feels wrong. Because Paul knows what our propensity is. Paul knows the way we tend to respond. And so the way he instructs us on this is by giving us the reverse, by telling us don't do this when you feel Wrong, And he answers that in the second part of verse 5. Look at what he says. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love has a long fuse and a short memory. Love is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Okay, let's unpack this um, a, a little bit. And um, a good place to start is by getting a sense of what Paul means when he uses the word angered. Because apparently the way we respond when we are wrong, he says love is not easily angered. And so we want to just define what does that mean. Love is not easily angered. Because it may not mean what we might think it means. I suspect it might mean maybe a little bit more. Okay, anger. Here's what Paul means. Paul is speaking about an emotional flare-up that demands punishment. He's speaking about an emotional flare-up that demands punishment. He's speaking about an internal distress that actively wants somebody to pay. It's what I experience when I'm hurt or upset or offended by someone that leads me to the place where I now want somebody to experience hurt because of it. It's an emotional flare-up that demands punishment. Now, it's really important for us to understand, and these things that I trust will come in handy as we continue to process. Love does not easily get angered. Now, Paul is not saying angered here means to feel hurt or to feel upset. 
No, because I can feel hurt and I can feel upset and not need you to feel hurt. That's just hurt, and sometimes it's just grief. On the other hand, I can want to hurt you or want to see you hurt and not be upset with you. That's called UFC. That's called violence. That's just, I enjoy hurting people for fun. Paul is speaking about a combination of these two, a marriage of these two ideas. It's when I am so upset that my being upset requires you to hurt because I am hurt. And Paul says, love is not easily angered. Again, I really want us to get this because Paul is not saying by this that love does not feel offended. He's not saying love does not feel hurt. He's not saying love does not feel wronged. Now, God feels offended. God feels hurt. God feels wronged. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying Love does not feel hurt to the point that it needs someone else to feel hurt. He's speaking about when I feel wronged and now someone must pay. Love does not easily get to the place where it pain demands payment. Love is not easily anger. Now, this is a helpful definition for me, um, and I trust it, it, it will prove helpful for us um, as we continue to look at what Paul seems to be getting at, because this starts to really bring to the surface some helpful truths for us to hold Onto. Here's the first thing I, 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 I realize about Paul's definition of being angered. It's being hurt to the point where I now need you to hurt. One of the things this reveals is the heart of anger. The heart of anger. Because again, the word Paul uses that speaks about getting to the place where I demand payback, where I, I need to see someone Hurt. This word doesn't necessarily care how much hurt I want that person to experience. It's just the fact that I'm so upset and I need somebody to hurt. I may just want them to experience a few split ends, or I may want them to experience a sudden end to their lives. But the word doesn't really care whether I want them to hurt a little bit or whether I want them to hurt a lot. The point is, I've gone to the place where I want them to experience a little bit of hurt. And you see why this work to define this word is going to come in so handy for us. It doesn't matter in this word whether I actually do something about my desire to see that person hurt or whether I just dream for it to happen. Because we'll sometimes say things like this, you know, um, oh my goodness, she has such an anger problem. She has such anger issues because she flares up and she flies off the handle and she starts to hurt all kinds of people. Me, on the other hand, I don't have an anger issue because I flare up internally and I just fantasize about their death and demise. That's different. I didn't do anything. And Paul says, no, 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 no. When you even get to the place where you start to want them to hurt a little bit or a lot, when you get to the place, whether you act on it or you don't, if that becomes what you are demanding, you have become angered because anger is a heart issue. I may never fly off the handle, but I may still have a heart full of anger. And if we don't get that, I think some of us may end up struggling with anger for years and years and years and years and never address it because I never yell, I never swear, and I never slam anything. I just sit in a corner 
and wish for death and cut you out of my life. That's different. Paul says, no. The other thing this definition, I think, reveals is the space in anger. The space in anger. Again, Paul is not saying don't feel offended. Is not saying don't feel hurt. Paul is saying love does not let the feeling get to the place where it needs payback. Don't let it get from this point to the point where you now demand or you need payback. That means there must be space in my anger. There must be space in my anger. There must be space between when I experience hurt and I experience being offended and when I get to the place where now I need you to hurt and I need you to be offended. Paul's saying, don't let it get from this place to this place, which means there must be space between those two places. There's a window between when I feel hurt and when I cuss you out, there's space between when I feel pain and I throw a punch. There's space, always. There's room between when I feel betrayed and I decide we are done. There's space between when she mouths off and when you go grab the soap. There's space. This is good because you know how sometimes it feels like, no, 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 anger is this instinct. Anger is this impulse. Anger is this inseparable and immediate connection between when I feel rage and when I react. And Paul would say, no, there's actually always space between the experience of your hurt and your desire and your demand to see someone else hurt. Those two do not have to connect. That's important to understand because that must also mean there is choice in my anger. There's choice in anger. It means I don't have to let my anger go. I don't have to let my anger grow to the place where it now demands that someone suffer because I have a choice. I may not have control over what happens to me. I may not even have control over what I feel necessarily, but there is space. And in that space, I get to choose whether or not I let it get from me being hurt to me now demanding someone be hurt. There's space, and in that space, I always insert a choice. Otherwise, why would Paul say, don't let it get from here to here? Except that there is space and accept that there is choice. This is so good, church, because it means I am not a slave, after all, to my anger. I'm not subject to my anger. Anger is actually a slave to my choice because I always insert a choice before there is any kind of response. You have never cussed someone out or cut someone out of your life without choosing to do it. It wasn't an impulse. You've never flown off the handle or let a punch fly without choosing to do it in the space after the hurt. You've never wished for someone's downfall or their demise without choosing. There's always space in my anger, and in that space, I always insert a choice. And the dream is, what choice will we insert this summer? Love can choose not to quickly or easily jump from pain to punishment. For some of us, uh, what maybe for most of our lives has felt like an impulse, Paul says, no, it's actually a choice. That's actually good news. 
What you may have referred to as some kind of a, a personality trait, I'm just an angry person, or, or family condition that you inherited, Paul would refer to as a choice. Paul would tell you, you did not lose your temper, you chose to let it go. There's space, and in that space, there is choice. You don't have a short temper. You make a lot of bad choices. Some of you are angry now, but let me tell you that this is actually good news. This is actually good. Because if my anger is an instinct and an impulse or an inherited trait, then I'm a slave to it. There is nothing I can do about it. But if, in fact, there is space, and in that space I can make a choice, now something can change. Now this summer can be different. Because I get to actually choose. And for some of us, I think we've been robbed of the beauty of space and the beauty of choice. And we've believed we are just subject to flying off the handle. I'm just short-tempered. And Paul would say, no, your story can be better than that. My anger would do whatever I choose in that space. I can choose to love instead of punish in that space. So the question is how? Um, how do I choose to fill the space with love when my little sister annoys me and everything, me just wants to take my Legos and not let her touch them ever again? Like, what do I do in those spaces, because in a room this size, not only will most of us have an opportunity to practice this very soon, but many of us come in here carrying punishment and a desire to see certain people pay. Some of us come in here carrying anger that we've let go, and it is now just looking to hurt that person. So what does it look like for us to choose not to let our anger grow to the point of wanting someone's pain? Um, th that's what makes the twin charge, the twin admonition um, in this verse so key. Look at 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 again, the second part. It says, love is not easily angered. It does not let itself get to the place where it demands punishment. Not easily. And then he says, it keeps no record of wrongs. You want to learn not to respond to pain by reaching for punishment. Paul would say, it starts with choosing not to keep record of of people's wrongs. In that space, after the offense, choose not to keep a record of it. Um, when, when we were kids, my siblings and I did not get a lot by way of special treats. But every now and then, like maybe once a year, my parents would splurge and they would bombard us with edible treasures, just all manner of deliciousness. And by that, I mean they would give each of us like three lollipops, like three suckers. And we would lose our minds. And fortunately, um, <laughs> when we got a hold of those suckers, um, it would become very hunger games at our home. Um, because we knew this is such a rare moment. This is such a priceless tr treasure. And we don't know when we'll experience this again. So what we would do is we would commit, each one of us separately, we would commit to figuring out how we could make this situation last. How we can make those suckers last for a year at least. Because once we've eaten them and, or once they're gone, it's like, what do we even have to live for? So here's what we would do. Each of us, and we were so good at this, <laughs> we would take 
you know, those delectables. And we would hide them in the most obscure, dark corners that nobody could access. Um, and then we'd just keep them there. We wouldn't eat them. We'd just keep them there and love knowing the fact that we have them there. And then what would inevitably happen, at least for me, is about 17 times a day, I would sneak back while no one was looking to that secret spot where my stash lived just to make sure that all three of these deliciousnesses from heaven were present, accounted for, and unlicked. Because my brother, my brother was a genius. Um, if he found your stash, he wouldn't take them. He would just kill them one lick at a time. And all of a sudden, you are left with the mystery of the shrinking lollipop, you know, on your hands. Like, what is happening? Brilliant guy that he was. It's so fascinating, though, that this is kind of what Paul is getting at in this verse when he speaks to the Corinthians. Love keeps no record of wrong. The word for record is the word to recount. It's so interesting. Because here's what Paul knows about us. When someone hurts or betrays, annoys or offends us, our natural tendency is to take that hurt and stash it in a really secret, dark corner of our hearts where no one can access it easily. And then what we'll start to do is about 17 times a day, we'll go back to that record and we will start to recount it. We will start to replay it. We will start to rehash it over and over and over again. And Paul will say, love does not go back to the hurt and recount it. And you know this is true. Someone upsets you and you start to replay what they said, what they were wearing, how they smelled, every single detail over and over and over and over in your mind. And Paul says, love does not replay the pain. Love does not replay the hurt. Love does not recount over and over the wrong that someone committed against you. In the space, after you experience the hurt, you get to choose whether you record it and then start to recount it over and over again. And if you're like me, you are really good at processing, rehashing it, Coming home and rehashing it, driving home and rehearsing what I should have said and what I'll say next time and just replaying and recounting it. And Paul is saying love doesn't do that. Now let me be very clear. Paul is not saying love does not remember the hurt. He's not saying love does not remember the wrong. He's saying love refuses to keep recounting the wrong. Love refuses to keep going back and replaying the scene. Because you know, there's some hurts that we will never forget, not anytime soon at least. And there are hurts that for some of us will be triggered 17 times a day, even as I'm talking, you are thinking about certain things, and you are maybe even refeeling some of the sting of that hurt and that offense. But what Paul is saying is that every time you remember, there is space in which you can choose, I'm not going to replay it. I'm not going to go back and recount it. Um, many of you know that one of the, the, the strongest traits of my godliness is my love for tennis. And uh, for somebody who loves tennis like I do, this is like the best time of year. I mean, Wimbledon is happening in, in London. And, um, and I was watching a, a couple of days ago, um, 
when Bethany Maddox-Sands, an American tennis player, doubles world number one, you know, Olympic mixed gold medalist, whatever. Anyway, she had one of the most horrendous injuries I've ever seen on a tennis court. Her knee just did things no knee should ever do. And she's on the court screaming in excruciating pain. Yesterday, I, I listened in as she gave uh, an update on her condition, an update on her injury. And it was fascinating. She's laying there in the hospital, you know, with her legs stretched out, still experiencing a little bit of pain from the injury. And I thought it was so, so, so intriguing that she said, no matter how many times the people in here have brought it up with me, I refuse to go back and watch the video of that injury. And she said, because I lived it. I do not want to have to go and relive it again. I do not want to have to go and replay it again. I have enough reminders that I refuse to go back and replay it. And what Paul is saying is that's what love does with offenses. I lived it. I don't need to go back and replay it. I don't need to go back and re-experience it. I don't need to go back and re-aggravate it. Love does not keep a record. And you know the reason you DVR something is so you can replay it. And Paul is saying, love chooses not to keep replaying that thing that your mom said or that your dad did. And this makes sense. Because what Paul understands is that replaying will eventually demand repaying. Paul understands. Playback will eventually lead me to want payback. If you replay it over and over, you eventually want someone to pay. If I choose to let that record just rerun, I will feed the feeling of anger and it will grow claws and eventually it will demand blood. Somebody has to pay. Um, I think one of the most picturesque stories when I, when I think about this is found in the Old Testament, in the book of, of 1 Samuel. And uh, it shows up in the relationship between David and King Saul. Um, and many of you know the story, some of you might not. Let me give you a couple of quick cliff notes. I mean, so David is this young stud of a guy. He shows incredible promise and potential for leadership. And he shows incredible promise and potential for being a warrior, a military mastermind. So King Saul takes to David, loves David. He not only chooses to take him on as his protege, but he chooses to take him in as his son. David moves into the palace, and David lives with King Saul, and there's this beautiful relationship that's formed. David actually starts to go out to war, accompanying King Saul onto the battlefield. All is good, all is love, until the feud of 1 Samuel chapter 18. And here's how it happened. Uh, David and Saul came back from a war, having won it, victorious. And as they march back into town, there's a group of ladies who think they're doing somebody a favor by composing a song to welcome them back. The lyrics of the song went something like this. Woo, Saul! Woo, you've slain your thousands, Saul. You go, Saul. And then it says right after that, and David, woo, woo! You've slain your ten thousands. Saul, JV, David, MVP of the professional league. Needless to say, Saul does not like the... Look at what it says. We'll put this up on the screen. It says in verse 8 of 1 Samuel chapter 18, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. 
They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. He thought. He thought. But me with only thousands? Hmm. What more can he get but the kingdom? He's coming after my throne. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Woo! Man! Saul gets angry, not even because of something David did, but it was about David, and it started to be directed at David. So what did Saul start to do? He started, in his mind, to replay the lyrics of that song. Wait, did they say tens of thousands? And thousands for me? And he replayed that song until the replaying started to grow and demand repaying. Until before long, it started to demand blood. And it started to take on a life of its own. David must want my throne. David never said anything about your throne. Well, but he must as I continue to replay it. And the more he replayed it, the more he longed to see David repay. So much so that after a while, there was a scene in which Saul grabs a spear while they're sitting in the house. In the house. I don't know why he has a spear in the house. But he grabs a spear and throws it at David with every intention of pinning him to the wall. I don't know if I mentioned David's a super stud warrior guy. He just ducks out of the way. Saul misses. So Saul goes, grabs the spear, and throws it at him again. David misses, and now Saul is increasingly frustrated. This little guy is hard to kill. So he decides instead of killing him, I'm going to just kick him out of my life. I want nothing to do with you, and he boots him out of the house because he keeps replaying. And the more he replays, the more his anger grows. And the more his anger grows, the more he wants to see David pay. Kicks David out of the house. So David leaves the palace, and Saul starts to hear about how David is growing in success and is growing in influence on the other side of town. So that makes Saul even crazier, and he starts to replay and replay and replay, and this grows. Eventually, Saul decides, I'm going to get David, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to use my own daughter to manipulate him. So he goes to one of his daughters and has his daughter, you know, committed to marrying David. Not because he wants his daughter to marry David. He hates David by now. But because he wants to tell David, David, hey, listen, great offer for you. You can marry my daughter. Come back to the palace and whatever and let's all be chill. Uh, But you can marry my daughter if you do me a small favor and kill a hundred Philistines for me. That's brilliant. Because Saul's been replaying and replaying, and he's been rehearsing and rehearsing now how he can repay and repay David. And he figures, if I tell him to go kill a hundred Philistines, what's going to happen? The Philistines are going to kill him. That way, I get to keep my kingdom, and I get to keep my kid, because I don't want her marrying him anyway. So here comes David, and he goes out and says, oh man, I love your daughter so much, I killed 200 Philistines. No! He gets angrier and angrier and angrier because now he's lost his daughter to the guy he hates. And David's respect has increased and increased around the nation. Until eventually this thing turns into a full-fledged manhunt, as we'll see here in a second. He replay. It just starts with replaying, and it turns to repaying. And before you know it, and let me just say this. If we had more time, we'll talk about the fact that if you continue to replay, your anger is going to continue to grow and grow. And if your anger grows, it's going to eventually spawn some claws, and those claws are going to demand blood. And guess what? Most of the time, it's going to be your blood. It is going to eventually kill and consume you. Man, you watch what happened to Saul's life. He becomes so obsessed with repaying David that he loses his relationship with his daughters. He loses his relationship with his son, Jonathan. His family is all up in arms. He loses his trust with his military force. He loses his grip on his kingdom. Eventually, he loses the kingdom. Eventually, he loses his life because he just insisted on replaying until he longed to repay, until that consumed him. It drained the very life out of him. 
And by the way, for some of us, we are moving in that direction by simply allowing the scenes to replay and replay and replay and replay. And what Paul is saying is, no, in the space after I'm hurt, love will always choose to refuse to replay that scene. And again, for some of us sitting here this morning, we've maybe missed the fact that there is space and there is choice, and we've let our anger, we've let our hurt just continue to grow as we replay and replay and replay. And then it becomes impossible, not just for us to love that person, but as you watched in Saul's life, it becomes difficult to love anybody else. In fact, you have relationships like this, where somebody is replayed and replayed and replayed to the point that if anyone talks to Saul, guess what he'll be talking about? Hey, anyone seen David? You guys know what David is? Man, my mother-in-law. Oh my goodness, this political party. And that's all they talk about. Your life is being stolen from you. And it's hard to love people when that becomes the consuming obsession. If you choose to play back the ways you feel hurt or offended by someone, you eventually need them to be repaid. But in the end, you will pay. And Paul would beg us, this summer, let's choose differently. Let's choose love. Let's choose to live. Let's choose not to replay. What does that look like as we wrap this story. Well, after about a decade, um, David is now on the run. He's been on the run for about 10 plus years from Saul, because Saul is just now full-fledged after David. Um, David has been forced to leave his family. He's been forced to leave his home, and he's living in the wilderness, and he's sleeping in, in caves with a number of his men a number of his friends. I imagine, and I don't have to imagine because I've read the Psalms that David penned while he was on the run, while he was a fugitive for something he didn't even do. David was upset. David was hurt by this. David was angry because of this. So what does he do about it? What do you do when you feel offended? Um, all right, I'll keep this really quick. But one time, Saul comes after David, and he takes 3,000 men. 3,000 men who enlisted to be in the military, and now it's their job to go find one dude. So he takes them out on a trip to go and find David because he gets a drop on David's location, and he goes after David. And uh, when he gets to a spot near where he believes David is, he goes into a dark cave to, to relieve himself. He goes to go party, um, the number two variety, um, to put it um, more precisely. So um, he gets into this dark cave while his armed guys guard the mouth of the tomb. And he, you know, he starts to do his thing. Little does he know, deeper in that cave is David and his men. And so they see Saul popping a squat just a little bit ahead of them. And his boys are like, there it is. Woo! This is the moment we've been waiting for. God has delivered him into your hands. This is the perfect opportunity to pay him back for all of the pain that he has caused you. And so while Saul is, you know, indisposed or whatever he is, David sneaks up on him quietly and he slices off a corner of his royal robe. And then he sneaks back into the shadows with his men. And his men are like, oh, when will the killing commence? Hello. You know. Um, and it's fascinating. After David does this to read what he says. This is, this is interesting. This is in chapter 24. But look at what happens. David afterwards was so conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of Saul's robe. It bothered his conscience so much that he even went as far as to cut a piece of his linen that he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay a hand on him. 
For he is the anointed of the Lord. For she is a daughter of the Lord. For he bears the image of God. What right do I have to even come that close to hurting him, David says. And with these words, he sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack. So nobody speaks ill of this man in my presence. Nobody ever lays a hand on this man ever again. Wait a minute, David. Isn't that the guy who tried to hurt you? Isn't that the guy who's trying to kill you even right now? And Saul left the cave and went away. What's David saying? My job is to love this man, even though he's hurt me. It's God's job to repay. I refuse to treat him in any way that will hurt him. I feel bad that I even spoke that way of him in front of my kids. I feel bad that I even spoke that way about her. I feel bad that I even soiled her reputation by cutting off a slice of her dignity. It is God's job to repay the hurt I've experienced. It is my job to love. It is my job to forgive. And I think what David would say to us, and I think what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13 is release the anger. Release the anger. When I feel offended, when I feel angered, when I feel hurt, instead of replaying it, I ought to release it. Instead of reliving it, I ought to release it. In that space between when I feel hurt and when I replay, replay to the point where I want repay, I ought to choose to say. And I want to put this simple prayer up here, prayer that I, I trust many of us will choose to pray, God, I give you my anger. Would you give me your love? I give you my anger. Would you give me? What if every time we felt offended this day and this summer, we started before we said anything else or did anything else or replayed any scene, we just said that prayer, God, I give you my hurt. I give you my frustration. I give you my anger. Would you give me your love? Because it's never my job to make someone suffer. It's never my job to go after payback. It's always and only God's job. Look at a couple of these verses really quickly. Romans 12, verse 19. Do not take revenge ever. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But leave space for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And David echoes this in verse 12 of 1 Samuel 24. He says, may the Lord, and he tells this to Saul, may the Lord judge between you and me because I had the chance to hurt you, but I chose not to. My job is to love you. My job is to even honor you. And he says, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but for me, I will not touch you. Mom, may the Lord deal with you for what you've done to me. But I wish you no harm. Dad, may the Lord deal with you for what you've done. But as far as I'm concerned, I don't wish you any harm. Now again, I'm not suggesting that you sit down for coffee with all of these people. David and Saul doing coffee would not have been a good idea. David stood at a distance but still communicated, hey, I hold nothing against you. I forgive you. Let God deal with the ways that you have wronged me. God, I give you my anger. Would you give me your love? It's what Jesus did. 1 Peter 2, 23. When people hurled insults at him, he felt them. He felt every single one. But he didn't retaliate. And I don't know if you knew, but Jesus could have. When he suffered, he made no threats. He didn't even slice off somebody's robe. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Father, it is yours to revenge. It is yours to pay back. It is mine to love these broken people. What if this was the summer when the church chose to love well? What if this was the summer we realized I can choose to release 
the anger. I can choose to release the wrong. What if this was the summer when some of us released uh, the anger and we refused to replay the hurt? What if this was the summer that we chose to maybe even communicate to that family member, I don't need you to pay anymore. I'm done punishing you. I'll let God do that, and I'm praying that he will give me the grace to love you. Whatever that means. That doesn't always mean we're BFFs, but it at least means I don't wish ill on you. I wish blessing on you. What if this was the summer? We stop denying that we're angry just because we're not flying off the handle, and yet every conversation we talk about, the same frustration. Denying that we're angry, and yet in our minds, we cannot stand the thought of a certain person. We cannot stand the success of certain people. What if this was a summer we acknowledge, I've been angry, and God, I release my anger, and I receive your love. What if this was the summer? Or we stopped cutting off slices of people's reputations. What if this was the summer our kids stopped hearing us rehash the in-laws' offenses in our homes? What if this was the summer we said, I, I choose to live. I'm done being consumed by anger, and I choose to love. I'm done trying to hurt and punish you. What if this was the summer when we painted a picture of a Savior who knew and felt each of our offenses against him, and he not only chose in the space, he entered into our time and space. And it only chose not to punish us, he chose to take our punishment on himself so he could release us to go free and live and love and wished us more than the best, he gave us heaven. What if we got to paint a picture of that every time someone offended us? I release that anger and God I pray for your love. And let me say really quickly, I hope we talk to people. If you realize I release and I pray for love, but I, I, it just keeps going and going and going, I hope you, in a safe context, address the person. Or write a letter. Um, process it with someone you trust. And I want to be careful about that because we love to say we are processing our anger, but we always seem to want to talk to the people who are just going to fuel the anger and feed the anger. Versus somebody who would say, okay, how do we honor God and how do we move towards healing? Those are the people I should be processing with. But what if this was a summer when we started to express love, particularly to those who hurt us? And so, Lord, I pray that you do something healing even in this room. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would give us such power and grace to look on Jesus and the way he's treated us. And that even now, Lord, as some of us release our anger, that you would fill us with a miraculous love where somebody who's maybe never heard a word of blessing from us in a decade would once again hear us wish them well. Would you give us that kind of grace? Because that's the kind of grace you showed us. In Jesus, it's in his name we pray. Amen.